You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Josh. Hey, Bob. How you doing? I cannot complain. Uh, let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show. Available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. Amazingly, and you are Josh Summers. And those are my dogs. Can you hear those? They just started barking. I can. The male person may have arrived. Um, the uh, And you uh, have been kind enough uh, to suggest that we do a series of conversations, of which this is conversation number two, in which I get all self-indulgent and flesh out my worldview. Um, which we're loosely calling the, the Dharma, Dharma of Ba. Which I'm happy to say is your idea. Uh, not that I don't like the phrase, but I think I would like to um, muster the, the usual false humility and say, aw shucks, should we really give it a name that has my name in it? But you insist. And so, okay, that's okay. That's fine. Yeah, it's just easier for, 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 for generations to come to have a, have a, yeah. a big heading, heading for the, for the whole yeah. thing. And they'll know who that refers to because it's it's not like there's more than one Bob. No, world. by that point, your your Bobness will have have reached it'll, it'll its be apothe- like it'll be like apotheosis. There'll be uh, like two. It'll be like Pliny the Elder and Pliny the Younger, like Bob of New Jersey and Bob of uh, of whoever. Uh, so, anyway, thank you, thank you for this. And 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 the first one of these we did is available. I think we'll probably link to it in. Uh, in show notes or something uh in any event you could find it on youtube um by googling our names and 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 the term the logos l-o-g-o-s because that's what we talked about and just to briefly recap very briefly the logos it's an ancient concept the basic idea is there's a kind of logic running through in some sense governing uh human history and history more broadly uh history of the world um that doesn't govern so strictly perhaps as to rule out human agency but does still shape uh the contours uh of our of our options maybe in some sense and is a manifestation of a larger purpose a higher purpose classically conceived a divine purpose in any event a purpose that is in some sense associated with a good. That's why they call call it divine, I guess. Uh, we talked about the version of the logos associated um, with Philo of Alexandria, um, uh, who lived 2,000 years ago. My contention is that there's a, a, a version of the logos that it, w- you could talk about today, um, kind of updated, uh, uh, that is scientifically respectable. And, and that one thing that implies is that you could have a worldview that is scientifically respectable, but uh, also uh, involves the notion of some larger purpose unfolding. And the last thing I'd say is that I think uh, this is if you had such a worldview, which we will try to continue to spell out uh, in its in its various um, in its various ramifications, um, it would help you make sense of the current world, including headlines we're seeing and things. That's my contention and and predicaments we famously face right now as human beings. Uh, so that's 
the logos. Those are my dogs again. Your, do- your dogs like the uh, like the summary you just gave. <laughs> Would you say the the logos you refer to it as as a, as um, the, the algorithm of the human history? But is it is it constrained to that only in your in your view? Do you no, have a booster? certainly not. Now, of course, it's classically conceived. I mean, Philo of Alexandria was Jewish, so he would have thought of humans as having existed uh, pretty near the beginning. He didn't have any, you know, modern notion of evolution. But I think in the updated version of the Logos, you would say that biological evolution is itself uh, part of the Logos, big part. You know, if you, if you want to think of the Logos as, in some sense, an algorithm, uh the 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 uh you know natural selection is embodies uh i don't want to say it's all of the algorithm but it's in a way the central part from our point of view there was of course a history before natural selection that involved you know you could say prebiotic evolution or something you know the evolution of the cosmos and um and there are people who work these into a single kind of worldview, of course, prebiotic. There have been these cosmic visions, prebiotic. I think maybe Teilhard de Chardin, who is uh, relevant to this, this conversation, uh, thought that way. Um, and, and in any event, you, you would then, um, break biological, break evolution, break postbiotic evolution up into biological evolution and what we call cultural evolution, that is to say the evolution of technologies, ideas, and so on, and see those as a, a kind of a single un- unfolding. Would you feel comfortable putting psychological evolution into that equation? Yeah. I mean, I think cultural evolution involves psychological evolution we are in some sense very different beings from even, gosh, my father. I mean, I'm in some sense a different being from millennials, you know, <laughs> it's like, and, and I kind of mean that. I mean, technology, or let's just take a clear example. Let's say uh, before the invention of agriculture, when everyone was a hunter-gatherer, just a different different worldview from living in a, in a modern, technological, somewhat secular society. Um, and... I, I think to maybe get closer to what you have in mind, I don't know. I think we have some psychological evolving to do if we are going to, in a sense, kind of wisely accept the guidance of the logos uh, and adapt to uh, our current moment uh, wisely. Yeah. Um, and, and in terms of your worldview, what we're loosely calling the Dharma of Bob, um, it occurred to me that, uh, your your understanding the in your worldview like the key features of your of your worldview are essentially like signposts on the evolution or within the evolution of the logos so and you kind of just named a few biological evolution cultural evolution then psychological evolution technological evolution and, and all of these things um, feed into how the logos is has evolved through, through millennia um, and, and, and updated itself. And then how that, I think in your worldview, it's like this, this necessitates a consideration of all those elements to fully understand the picture of say something like where we are now. Yeah. I think if I um, 
Well, maybe you should say a little more about that. I think I, I think I think the answer is yes. But do you want to elaborate? Well, yeah. I mean, you can have a very constrained idea of what the logos is in kind of a theological sense, but you're you're taking the term and 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 seeing it as this this algorithmic code that evolves through time, and and the, the, like your books and and the, uh, I think point out the signposts of that evolving algorithm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I mean by signpost you kind of mean thresholds. Yeah, that, that's maybe a better word. Periods where where there's a there's a there's a there's a punctuation in the equilibrium and it, there's a jump into a new new kind of order of things. Yeah, and I would say we're at one. I, I mean, uh, and in a sense have been for some time. But I would say one way to describe the current moment is that we're uh, at a point where technology is kind of pushing us and pulling us in the direction of global community, an actual cohesive kind of community where we like quit having wars and stuff and spend more time working out common problems um, and develop toward actual mutual understanding. Um, and, And I would say what the logos is saying now is, you don't have to move in this direction, but the alternative is going to be really bad. I mean, that's, you know, what, what wisdom is, among other things, I guess, is like avoiding the bad outcome, right? It's like understanding that whatever the short-term inclinations, uh, if you want the long-term happy outcome, you, you need to proceed along certain paths. And And, and I would say that, um that that right now there there's a there's a you know a crossroads i don't want to be too dramatic and i and i don't want to define now too narrowly i mean globalization has been in the process this is uh, you know uh i guess i'd say if there's one book of mine that spells out the logos although ironically doesn't mention it it spells out my conception of the logos before i was really conversant in the concept, the ancient conception of the logos, it's the book non-zero. Um, and that makes the argument that globalization has been proceeding for thousands of years in a certain sense. Uh, but we're at a point now where I think it's becoming clearer and clearer that there's no good alternative um, to uh, global community. No, no, no alternative that's, that's by and large um good for human beings. And and I guess one thing that might distinguish my worldview from the worldview of other people who, who are saying that about the current moment is I'm arguing that this was in the cards in the sense that at least since technological evolution began in the human species, assuming we didn't get wiped out by a meteor or something um, or, or some other catastrophic thing, we were bound to get to this point because technological evolution is a very powerful impetus and is itself uh, a manifestation of the logos. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think it was, and you know, some people aren't interested in the question of whether it was inevitable that we get to this point. Um, but if you are, I think it was, and I make that argument uh, at length in the book, non-zero. Um, and, and a thing I, 
I maybe didn't emphasize enough in the book, although I think it's clear and explicit, is that what happens next is not inevitable. Okay, that part is not. Um, that that part is up to us. Yeah, and I, I as I flagged last night, uh, chap page nine of the introduction to non-zero um, in the paperback edition that I have distills all of that and with and given the fact that this you were writing that what in 1999 2000 or well it's interesting the hardcover and the paperback are in a way two different things i don't know if that so that's the introduction um so the and you say you know i I can't resist but you say health officials seriously discuss the prospect of worldwide plague (laughs) unspeakably gruesome ebola virus perhaps or some microbe we don't yet know about spread around the world by jet-propelled travelers. <laughs> and it goes on to predict this, this kind of apocalyptic potential. Um, it is a test, the moment is a test of political imagination or ability to accept basic necessary changes in structures of governance, but also a test of moral imagination. Right. Yeah, no, that does kind of uh, sum it up. I, I, I think that part would have been in the hardcover uh, as well, uh, what what and by the way a pandemic is just a number of non-zero sum problems that's why the name of the book is is non that's one reason the name of the book is non-zero but the the um the the there are a lot of non-zero sum problems right now that that correlate one thing what a non-zero sum problem does is it it makes your your fate at least somewhat correlated with the other player in the game so uh, you know, if the pandemic spreads out of China, it's bad for us. It's bad for Europe. I mean, if it spreads through China, it's bad for every people in China too. To begin with, it's bad for everybody. If we get it under control, it's not. Um, nuclear war, bad for everybody. Don't do it. Better for for us, and so on. Um, and I think there are a lot of non-zero sum games that that uh, that we face at a global or in some cases, regional level, but in any event, uh, make cooperation the only alternative to a bad outcome. That's what I, that's the logic that I argue uh, favors moving toward um, global community. Just quickly, back to the difference between the paperback and the hardcover. Hardcover came out in early 2000. Some people took it as more optimistic than I meant it. So if you compare the paperback introduction closely to the hardcover introduction in the paperback, I drive home something more forcefully that I didn't say in the hardcover was like, we could have a very bad outcome. Okay. This is not an optimistic book. It's the the line, the line on the bottom of that page. On the other hand, we could blow up the world. Remember even the poppy seeds don't always manage to flower. Right. Because I had been using this poppy seed metaphor to describe what I meant by uh, well purpose and destiny and so on but but um the uh yeah i don't know if that's in the hardcover but right that's the kind of emphasis i added in early 2001 um i added it before 9-11 but of course 9-11 started raising all these questions about globalization it's like oh terrorists can organize globally and they use the tools of communication modern tools of communication and so on and on and on. And yeah, I mean, I mentioned, I had mentioned that in the book as well. Um, so uh, yeah. Uh, no, you it, know, I mean, it, it, it felt, it felt pretty prescient to me. I didn't get, I wouldn't say I got everything right, but uh, I mean, there are things that I would, that, that in retrospect, 
were less prescient. But broadly speaking, for better or worse, I think the the worldview holds up. And I, I forgive me for doing this, but I I always try to listen with the ear for someone who's dropping in for the first time to hear to 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 encounter you and your your worldview. Um, and I just having trying to share this with with friends. Um, the world the word non-zero can can often kind of be kind of an abstract term that's not familiar to folks, and then they they kind of kind of tune out when I when I try to speak about it. Um, so I, I hate to 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 ask you to to very briefly kind of just compare what a zero sum game is to a, a non zero sum game, but it, yeah, it's uh... it, it, and and I, and maybe to add to that, um, I was I was surprised or kind of it 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 did surprise me a little bit to 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 re- read that you you saw that 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 these games uh, get played all the way down at at a, at a biological level, like among cells and presumably smaller bits than that. Um, uh, and that, that I felt that was quite interesting. I always thought it was just more of like, like primates and humans and, and other animals endowed with consciousness engaging in these games. Um, yeah, no, so, it, you're right. So, so first quickly, you know, as I said, in a non-zero sum game, the fortunes of the players are at least to some extent positively correlated. You know, classic zero sum game, you're playing tennis with somebody. Every point is good for that other player exactly to the extent that it's bad for you. Okay. Your, your correlation, your fortunes are exactly inversely correlated. That's why the game is zero sum. You, you're, there's a winner, there's a loser. Their, their fortunes add up to zero. If, if you're playing doubles, then the person on your side of the net is in a entirely like extremely non-zero sum relationship with you. Each point is either good for both of you or bad for both of you, highly correlated fortunes, but any degree of positively correlated fortune means that it's not a purely zero sum um, relationship. Um, And uh, yeah, biology. um, The interesting thing is how, well, broadly speaking, an interesting thing about natural selection is that it it acts as if it were intelligent, even though it's not consciously intelligent, right? I mean, it, it quote, designs organisms that are these amazing feats of engineering, even though all it is is this project process of blind trial and error. Um, and uh, it recognizes zero-sum and non-zero-sum logic in that sense. I mean, implicitly, unconsciously uh, recognizes it. And so, uh, just to start at the very beginning, if if two genes are on the same strand, uh, are in the same genome, like if you look at two genes on the same strand of of uh, DNA, or two, two you know that that, that are um, like right next to each other on a strand of DNA, um, it makes sense for them to work together because the genes that fail to you know to work together to construct an organism. A, a cohesive organism that is good at surviving long enough to get its genes in the next generation. Cause if they don't cooperate, they're probably not going to get it in the next generation. And what natural selection says is that that means we wave them goodbye. Okay. So, so natural selection favors genes that they don't think about it, but they wind up playing successfully non-zero sum games with each other, which is to say they play them to a win-win outcome by the lights of natural selection. What we have with us is organisms full of genes that 
uh, play nicely with each other to build the organism. There are actually little exceptions where you have, uh, you know, genes that are in a sense, they can be parasitic. They, they, They can do a good job of spreading themselves at the expense of the organism. I forget the details, but that's an asterisk anyway. Um, by and large, um, or to, or to move to a, a kind of a higher level of of uh, organization, the um, uh, I hope I'm getting a specific example right. You know, Lynn Margulies is famous for her notion of symbiosis in in the evolution of cells. So if you ask um, why, you know, there are these prokaryotic, very simple cells don't even have a, a, a distinct nucleus. And then there's the eukaryotic cells that, that finally came along um, and constitute us. Um, and they have these little organelles, I think uh, they're called within the cells. Um, and her argument is that they're used to, in some cases, these used to be separate cells and they came together and merged and I think the most likely scenario is is that the merger was of a sort that we can call non-zero sum. Last time I checked, that was the most likely um, theory. In other words, uh, coming together and forming a complex cell, like the the mitochondria within the cell, which makes energy. You know, it, it even has a whole different kind of genetic uh, heritage. I, I think I think the deal is your mitochondria comes from your maternal line exclusively. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, you, you, you start getting these things coming together, uh, for mutual benefit. And then, and then individuals do that at the level of societies. I mean, any, you know, ants without, again, without thinking about it, you know, different ants, uh, cooperate, um, in a way that is, well, (laughs) it gets complicated if you say, in what sense is it good for all of them? Some sacrifice for the good of the... Uh, the good of the colony and so on. But um, still, there's a, there's a kind of non-zero-sum logic underlying that. And then finally, you get to the point. I'll, I should stop talking soon. But. Well, no, I mean, I, you just I, one thing you just brought up was the, the way that it can. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I can speak to this correctly, but uh, the way that it can either pivot towards uh, an emphasis of selfishness versus or altruism. Right. Like the. Yeah, the, the 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 organism could could behave or act in ways that are, are self serving, or you know, it, with the notion of sacrifice of the ant that that is more species serving in an altruistic sense. Yeah, although it's important to appreciate at the same time that with a it's true that successfully playing non zero sum games can be good. For the species as a whole, or the group as a whole, or something else. At the same time, the basic idea in a non-zero-sum game is that it can be selfish. It can make sense at a selfish level in a subtle way. So, um, the uh, you think of an example where where something selfish for the individual or, or is experienced or perceived as being well, selfish and, and that it ultimately has ultimately has an altruistic outcome? Well, um, 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I mean, even to, um, you know, if you look at the way evolutionary psychology now explains the the origin of the quote altruistic impulses. Um, so, so, for example, my inclination to run into a burning building to save my offspring, if I did that, or say a sibling, mm-hmm. you know, we're more likely, we have this feeling of altruism in certain c- circumstances toward uh, a close kin. And that seems to have evolved through what's called kin selection. And at the level of the gene, that actually is selfish. Okay. Um, Dawkins's book, The Selfish Gene, the title was misunderstood. That doesn't mean we're all actually selfish because that's a case, kin selection, where I actually would sacrifice myself. I mean, I would run into a burning building, I suspect. I've never been put to the test, but if my daughters were in it, you know, and that would actually be a true altruism at the level of the individual because I'm reducing my chances of uh, living and increasing theirs. But at the level of gene, that is selfish. Now, if you look at the other kind of altruism explained uh, by evolutionary psychologists, we believe successfully, I believe successfully explained, which is called reciprocal altruism and which explains why even when we're dealing with non-relatives, we have all kinds of feelings like gratitude and affection for our friends. um, uh, And we will do things for our friends. That is thought to have evolved because it was, Selfish, not just at the level of the gene, but at the level of the individual in in the sense of, I mean, it was in the enlightened self-interest of people to strike up friendships. I scratch your back, you scratch mine, we'll both be more likely to survive. And that's another example of how it didn't just evolve as a conscious calculation among people. That's the reason it's governed by feelings. Is that mm-hmm. and, and you know you can go find it in chimpanzees. You know you can find reciprocal altruistic relationships in organisms that probably aren't consciously thinking about the benefits. So feelings evolved that are grounded in the genes that lead to behaviors that at an individual level might look altruistic, like oh today I give food to this person. But then tomorrow when I'm hungry and don't have any food, they give it to me. We both benefit from that relationship. It's non-zero sum. And that's a case where enlightened self-interest is what's governing the thing. So I I just – and similarly, today, like in the world – if you look around in the world, it would be great if more of us became more self-sacrificing probably in some sense. I mean I wouldn't want anybody to – pay the ultimate sacrifice and uh but that would be great but but the the point is that even if we if we all just pursued our enlightened self-interest um we'd probably get through this thing okay i mean uh well we're getting you know off the enlightened self-interest for a moment uh coming back to how feelings guide guide the guide the, the development in a way like the the, the, the feeling of it feels good um the thought i had is that the feeling is not separated from the biochemistry that generate help and the neuro the neuro uh, phenomena that that generate that feeling and um and i don't know how much you thought about this but i'm curious about it whether do you, do you see epigenetic changes affecting 
gene expression um, as as a vector of influence in this whole equation? Um, I don't know that it's critical. And I, and I just don't know much about it. It's funny, when I wrote my book, uh, The Moral Animal, uh, about evolutionary psychology, that was 94. And, and even, even Non-Zero, which had a couple of chapters on biological evolution, which was book came out uh, right at the very end of 99, early 2000. Um, the whole epigenetic thing had not really taken off. I mean, we should say that uh, I barely know enough about this to talk about it even even uh, in summary, but the basic idea is that actually, you know, the expression of, well, I guess one way to to say it is, you know, Classically, what I learned in in high school is that um, Lamarck was wrong. The environment doesn't, you know, infect inherited, biologically inherited characteristics. You can lift all the weights you want, but your child is going to be no stronger physically than they would have been if you had never lifted weights. Okay. Um, uh, That's not the way natural selection works. I I think whether or not that is still true is unclear, but <laughs> to me, cause I haven't looked into this, but the idea behind these epigenetic phenomena is that it certainly kind of looks as if sometimes your environment really does infect the inheritance, uh, uh, the biological inheritance of your, your, of the, of the offspring sometimes. And at a minimum, what that means is that if things that happen to one organism can influence the way the genes express themselves in the offspring. Okay. I think at a minimum, this epigenetic thing sometimes means that I don't, I, you know, I apologize for not having looked into it more deeply. And the reason I haven't is because I don't think from the point of view of the philosophy, it matters a whole lot. In other words, hmm. there are various things that, that could speed up natural selection in a certain sense or, 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 or make it an even more adaptive mechanism than it might seem to be. Uh, for example, there are there's what they call the evolution of evolvability, which is to say that over time, organisms might, through biological de- uh, uh, evolution, develop mechanisms that increase the likelihood that new genetic traits will be adaptive. And, and in that sense, maybe, quote, random isn't exactly the right word for them, even though that would not be Lamarckian uh, inheritance. So there are various ways, things that could could it speed up natural selection or or uh make g- genetic changes even more adaptive than you might guess from just a, a a plain vanilla description of darwinism from my point of view that philosophically i'm not sure they matter much and that's why i haven't uh, spent a lot of time on them but you're it's an it's a really interesting subject that everyone should look into including yeah. the well, yeah, no, and I, I just keep hearing more and more about it in terms of... Yeah, uh, I mean, I will say it is sometimes wielded by people who think that, uh, oh, this is, oh, so the evolutionary psychologists are wrong and blah, blah, blah. And and, and in my experience, these are people who really have not done their homework, okay? They, 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 they think its implications are more radical than I think they are to the extent that I can uh, tell. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, I know I know you wanted to dive into 
looking at this moment, this 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 political moment, uh, through the lens of logos and your your worldview. Uh, so why don't we why don't we, you want to tack into that? Yeah, I've said a little about it. I've said, uh, you know, at a global level, I think we need a lot more global cooperation. I'm not exactly the first person to say that over the last 30 years. Um, but to look at one of the great obstacles to global cooperation, you know, which, you know, some people call the psychology of tribalism. And then some people take offense at that term, but I, I haven't been able to find a better one. Uh, it, by the way, I, I don't think it should be offensive. It doesn't mean, I mean, if, if your own um, identity is in some uh, more literal sense tribal, like let's say you're a Native American and you identify with the Navajo Nation or something, you know, people might think that's tribal. I want to emphasize when we talk about psychology of tribalism, we're not talking about a psychology that you see in these primitive people who might still be affiliated with tribes. No, it's exactly the opposite. The point is, it's a psychology that's universal in human beings. And this is, to my mind, was the big take-home for me, at least, of evolutionary psychology. Anyway, we're all fundamentally alike. There is a human nature, and we are all, for better or worse, uh, you know, manifestations of it. We all face the same challenges. Um, And in the case of the psychology of tribalism, which, you know, you're seeing in American politics, more and more polarized. Uh, I would say um, this is something we need to transcend if we're going to solve the larger non-zero-sum problems at a global level, at a national level, whatever. Um, And I think to transcend the psychology of tribalism, A, it helps understand what it is, and I think Uh, evolutionary psychology helps explain why we have some of the cognitive biases that constitute the psychology of tribalism. Mm -hmm. I I think one unfortunate uh, thing about the term tribalism is some people, when they hear tribalism, they think, oh, okay, so warring tribes, they're full of rage and they're like using whatever, whatever weapons to, to, you know, uh, to kill each other, whatever image they have of tribal warfare And a lot of the psychological mechanisms that impede our getting along with one another and drive polarization are actually subtler than that. There are things like confirmation bias, right? Like, like I'm only, I'm only uh, absorbing those pieces of information that sustain my view that my group is right. And Trump supporters are evil, you know, Um, and then Trump supporters are subject to the same Thing And of course, this is exacerbated by technology that makes it so easy to be in separate information universes. But but my point is that that and other um, psychological biases um, or cognitive biases um, are sometimes subtle. It's not just rage, hatred. Uh, You know, these biases may get stronger the more enraged you are, the more you dislike the other group. But still, it's important to understand that these are in some sense cognitive biases affecting the way we process information about the world. And there's one cognitive bias that, that I think we should set aside a future conversation to really dwell on because I think it's so underrated. Um, I think maybe – I think you and I talked about it in a past conversation, but it wasn't one of these Dharma of Bob conversations, and that is um, attribution error. So let's just bracket that and promise to get back to it. Um 
because it's so um it's so fundamental and underrated and and i think it is also uh particularly relevant to one of the techniques that you and i share an enthusiasm for uh, as a as a way to um start trying to combat the psychology of tribalism which is you know a a contemplative practice maybe mindfulness meditation which i think is particularly well suited to the challenge but um in some future conversation maybe we can drill down into that particular cognitive bias with uh um with re- with reference to why meditation uh, might help fight it and and why uh buddhist philosophy might might help illuminate it even though i i don't i i don't think like buddhism is the only the only uh spiritual path to uh to where we all want to go right but yeah so there's a, a lot there um but with the current divide and the technological forces that, that seem to reinforce that divide and the political incentive in a way to to polar keep, keep, drive that polarization further um I guess I, I, I turn to someone like you ask to look for how how might those things be healed? How might those things be bridged? It's really uh it's really hard. I mean and I guess a sign of how hard it is is the fact that my mind just immediately turned to like a really challenging discipline mindfulness meditation. I mean meditation to my mind is a really it's a challenging practice. It's not easy. It's the opposite of easy. It's, it's like, you know, it's like, it's, it's going against the grain of our natural way of being. I mean, are there different, you know, some people like to say, no, no, actually you're getting in touch with the natural you. If you, you know, if you move toward, uh, you know, your Buddha nature. Okay. Well, leaving aside those arguments, my point is it's very much the the place you, you would want to get through, mindfulness meditation maybe through another contemplative practice or maybe through cognitive behavioral therapy or maybe just through reflection on the way you normally are and uh and an intention to change it uh but spell but, out spell spell out what you find what, what, what define what you find hard about it what's what's the hard piece well i mean the feelings the reason cognitive biases is a misleading term is that I think the biases tend to be triggered by feelings, right? Uh, in, 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 in subtle ways. Um, it's because you dislike the other group and you think they're, you feel hostility toward them that when they say something is true, your cognitive framework doesn't accept that. Okay, mm-hmm. the, so so, uh, or 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 at a subtler level, if, if you pay attention to the way confirmation bias works at kind of a micro level, like you you see on Twitter some information that confirms your worldview, your group is good, the other group is bad. If you pay enough attention, you'll see that you have a positive feeling toward that information. There's a feeling of embracing. You like that information. If you see information at odds with your view that your tribe is good and the other tribe is bad, there is a feeling of aversion. 
And that's the reason. And I think that drives the confirmation bias. You are, your, your feeling of aversion makes you interrogate it critically. Wait, are we sure about this premise of that? Are we sure about that? I'm going to go look into who actually said that. Is this a credible person? Whereas if it's information you like, you're not going to be so critical. You're like, oh, yeah, that's that's true. And, and what drives the, the idea that it's true is the feeling that it's good. You actually like it. So, and, and that's an example where we just normally aren't aware of those feelings. And that's what I mean by challenging. We were designed by natural selection to have these feelings guide our cognition with us not being aware of it. Because... Uh, and, and at one like, point in time, at one point in time, those that was evolutionarily ad, uh, advantageous. Right. Correct? At one point in time, these biases and the feelings that trigger them um, were adaptive. Uh, they must have been adaptive at the level of genes. In order, if they, if they indeed now have a genetic basis, they must have been adaptive at the level of the genes. Good for the genes, and I think in most cases you would say they were also good for the individual, uh, increase the individual's chances of surviving. Those aren't necessarily the same. As I said, I can help my genes by running into a burning building, saving my kids, for example. It is fair to say that uh, these cognitive biases were, were much more productive at the level of the individual's uh, survival uh, and Often psychological well-being, although those are another two things that aren't always the same, um, but now much less so. And that's why now for our own good, um, we need to become more aware of the biases. And and to get back to the very beginning, I think that's what the Logos is telling us. It, yeah. You know, we, that we were – I think we were bound to get to this point given that once human evolution was underway, maybe long before that, maybe once evolution was underway, because I, I personally think the evolution of some intelligent species, broadly speaking, like ours was likely opinions differ on that, but I think it was, um, I, you know, I think this uh, to a certain extent for at least for some long, long time, whether you believe it was uh, 10,000 years a million years or a billion years. <laughs> and this has been in the cards. And, uh, and, and, and so if you buy this idea that we can use this concept of the logos to describe all this, um, this is the message of the logos become more self-aware, transcend the parts uh, of you. And in particular of your cognitive biases that are not good for you or good for humanity broadly. And, you know, the, maybe this is a paraphrase or a way of, of rephrasing it all, but um, the challenge that, and I've thought about this for a long time, but the, the challenge is that, that everyone sort of gets born into level one. You, know, you, get, you get born into the system of, of having all these cognitive biases um, wired in from, from, from the get-go and, and we're in an environment now, the, the non-zero environment of increasingly an increasing demand for cooperation, which those biases make difficult. Right. 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 Siri's talking to me for a second. Um, and Maybe so this is a sign from the logos. Uh, what did Siri say? Uh, she said, "I didn't get that. Can you try it again?" 
<laughs> that's the so, logo. That is exactly. That's <laughs> the logos is more like you didn't do it this time. Can you try that again? That, that's right. where we are now. You keep not getting the picture. Can you try it again? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's this picture that, you know, the environment, the the evolutionary environment in a way is evolving through technological means and cultural means. And and yet individuals are born into a, a stage of consciousness, which um, if they stay there is, is imbued or, or driven largely by the cognitive biases that you're describing and therefore puts them at odd with the new environment that, that, that we're in. Does that at all hold water for you? Or is that, is that kind of. If I thinking? caught what you were um, saying, I was still kind of reflecting on Siri, as you said, <laughs> but the, um, so you think technology is pushing us into in some sense, kind of alien environments or. Well, no, no, it's not an alien environment. Just, just, it's a, it's a, it's an updated environment. It's, 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 it's a. Yeah. But, but it's, it's alien. I meant alien in the sense that it's less and less the environment we were engineered for by natural selection. And, and that's um, one reason we need to transcend some of the things that natural selection engineered into us. Um which and none of this is to say, by the way, that things were rosy back before the invention of agriculture when we were all living in an environment much more like the one evolution uh, kind of engineered us for, right? Uh, it's because remember, I mean, it, it's not like natural selections, uh, kind of short term well, logic, which is to create animals that are good at getting genes into the, into the next generation is, is morally good. I mean, on the contrary, it's like full of pain and suffering and violence and hatred. And I mean, that all this stuff was built into us by this algorithm. And if, if there's going to be a redemption of the algorithm, so to speak, it's going to be when we reflect on it and what its legacy is and what parts of the legacy we do and don't want to hang on to, including things like, uh, even though we're maybe designed by evolution to hunt and kill animals, maybe that's not nice. Maybe we should quit eating them. Maybe, uh, you know, questions like this. Um, uh, I guess what I'm trying to try, try to articulate though is that, you know, you know, a population or an individual or a group could could have that transcend like that that developmental transcendence. They could transcend those those early impulses. Um, the, the 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 predicament though is that 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 individuals are, are are still the next generation comes on board and they they would have to do this the same work of that self transcendence in a way. You see what I'm saying? You mean because the transcendence does not automatically transmit to the next generation yeah that is sadly true <laughs> i mean it's <laughs> because lamarck was broadly speaking right you, you you can lift weights and your kids won't be stronger you can meditate and they won't be more enlightened unless the state of mind you're in as you raise them is more conducive to uh enlightenment their enlightenment is that Am I still not getting your point or is that? I think that's my point. That's close to my point. Yeah, it takes, but, but you know, the good news is cultural evolution is cumulative. I mean, as we come to understand things, we build institutions that help propagate the understanding. I mean, look at science, right? Uh, You know, we have universities. They, they, I mean, uh, there are arguments afoot about how good a job certain social science departments are, are doing of that. And we don't, I don't want to get into that, but certainly if you look at, uh, you know, science, uh, 
you know, quote, hard science, physics, chemistry, biology, there's an accumulation of learning. We develop uh, institutions that propagate the stuff that seems true. And sometimes you get it wrong and we hang on to a false idea for a while, but on balance, comprehension grows. And there's no reason. And I think you can say humankind spiritual development has some of that property. It's not, it's harder maybe, but, but it has some of that. I can flag that for another conversation too. I would yeah, like yeah. to hear your thoughts around whether, whether university social science departments are logos aligned or not. <laughs> uh, that is a, a, an angle we, that would take us back to Jordan Peterson. Would, would, wouldn't it? He would have views on that. And he, he uses the term, the logos as we, as we mentioned last time around. Um, uh, but so, yeah, it's, um, you know, but look, in a way, see, in a way, it's an exciting time to be alive. I mean, this is an epic challenge. People like epic challenges, right? I mean, people, people, that's kind of the irony, I guess. I mean, what, you know, it's like I've been listening to, uh, um, not to date this conversation, because I hope that people will be listening to it uh, weeks, months, maybe even years from now, but. Decades. Uh, decades. I've been listening to. It's a bad habit in some ways, but I listened to the this Steve Bannon podcast. He is, of course, this Donald Trump, key Donald Trump advisor. And I mean, he clearly has an audience of people who are getting their their psychological sustenance out of the idea that they are at a war with evil. They're in war with people like me, I guess, and, and we are evil. Um, and, and then the, the so-called resistance, the anti-Trump forces, it's long been clear that many of them you know, as much as they might, uh, and of course I share, I'm not a Trump fan. I share that part of the worldview, but as much as they might fulminate with rage and seem unhappy, you can see their lives are getting meaning out of this epic challenge. This is the evil we have to confront. Well, uh, in my view, a more productive channeling of the, this is the evil we must unite to fight mentality, which is, I think, built into us by natural selection, would be the one I'm describing. It's like, wait a second. <laughs> it's like the enemy is the apocalypse. It is the the chaos that could engulf the world if we don't all get better at uh, transcending some of the uh, impulses and cognitive biases that are driving this particular political conflict in America right now. But it's a little harder to enlist people in that cause that that because the enemy is not a group of people in, in a sense. I mean, it is in the sense that, that the enemy is all of us. The, the enemy is is the things we by our nature do. Uh, but the enemy is not this one group of people that are doing the bad thing, whereas your group is doing the good thing. No, the idea is we're all to some extent doing the bad thing. Mm -hmm. And. Um, and it's a challenge and you can argue that some people are even more, um, more unenlightened than others. Fine. But, but it's probably not productive to dwell on that a and B in any, in any event. Um, I think are there, are there any recent signs of optimism from your, from your perspective around how at this threshold within this particular political transition, there might be signs of, um, I don't know, I, transcendence coming? I guess I'd say yes and no. 
I mean, I think some of the backlash against what's called call-out culture or cancel culture is productive. In the last issue of uh, this newsletter I put out with some other people, the non-zero newsletter, we linked to a piece in the New York Times about this uh, woman who uh, at Smith, she teaches at Smith College. She would, I think, conventionally be classified as a black radical leftist, probably. But she, she's, um, she's got this idea of replacing calling out with calling in, um, which is to say, when somebody says something you consider outrageous, address it privately hmm. and with com- and with compassion and 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 with understanding. It's like. Uh, and, and um, so that th- that kind of thing is is productive. I, I I do I don't want to get off on this so much, but I do think that some groups that have styled themselves as transcending this tribalism and opposing call out culture themselves have their blind spots. I, I don't even want to get into it more than that. They have they have prohibitions of free speech that they themselves actually abet, whether they know it or not, in certain mm-hmm. areas. And so, but 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 that's just. You know, I, I I would be guilty of that too. There's definitely because of my political leanings, there there's forms of call out and cancellation that drive me crazier than others, and and there there are speech codes that I'm less unhappy about than others. Uh, but but still, I do think there's more and more acknowledgement that we have a serious problem here. I I, I think the, the fact that more people are talking about polarization, tribalism. That's a start. Um, but man, we, we've really got some work to do. Yep. Uh, and not just in America, but, but our, I think our foreign policy is infused by the same kind of, uh, quote, tribalistic thinking. And, um, and that's not widely recognized. Sure. Yeah. No, I think, um, I think you, that, that, that uh, all of that um, is part of, the vision that you have and uh and it is it it is a it's a it's a it's a chilling threshold that we're at i think i mean it it, it, oh it's that 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 you would hope that that would get people like geared up it's like it's like almost literally apocalyptic we could blow up the we have enough nuclear weapons to like i don't know probably actually end human life i haven't done the math I mean, probably if you fired them randomly around the globe, right? Which you wouldn't do, I guess. You'd the fire would be concentrated uh, mainly between uh, Russia and the U.S. Get a little China action, and a few other countries. Um, but uh, probably the species. But but the point is, imagine how bad it would be. Okay, we're talking epic. Yeah, and and of course, climate change. Um. Uh, there, there are more of these kinds of problems than I think is appreciated. Climate change is the one we hear most about. I think there, there are more. And um, that's epic, right? It's like almost literally apocalyptic. Well, the apocalypse should get you kind of geared up, right? I mean, you know, that's, that's what I like. Um, but again, the, the, the most, the easiest to activate, it's not the easiest form. What it's not the easiest way to activate the kind of uh, quote tribal 
impulses. In other words, you'd like us to consider ourselves all on this planet and just realize, oh, shit, we're all in the same tribe. And the enemy is in some sense within us, but it's not like this distinct group of people. Um, but again, that it's hard to it's hard to marshal that particular sense of tribalism. I don't think it's impossible. It's just more challenging for reasons, you know, on, on a future occasion, we could get into the dynamics uh, of social media and the incentive structure that, that they present. There's all, all kinds of um, challenges, but um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a tough one. Um, but I'd like to, I'd certainly like to, you know, invite, people listening to this to think of ways to participate in the cause if they find these arguments compelling. Um, and, uh, and I appreciate your willingness to, uh, to, to have these conversations and. Uh, no, I, I, I very much enjoy like being able to try to pick through your worldview because it does it does it really does um you know i i i always appreciate either i listen to you or, or read what you know some of your books it, it it's like a um a comparison i remember reading the liner notes of a uh a compact disc by the emerson string quartet um and and one of the the i think the violist uh was referring to the, the the art of the fugue by Bach, and says when you, whenever he listens to Bach, he said he, he it feels like his whole perceptual windshield is cleared, and and he's able to see and 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 tune into things much more clearly. And I and I feel like again these signposts that you you point out of the, the evolution of the logos, they they really once you crack them conceptually to some degree, it's they light up. You see them lighting up like you know if you learn a new word, you suddenly see the word appearing everywhere. But you, these these structural dynamics and and um and uh developments really do line up or light up when when once someone has a has a handle of them they start to see them everywhere um and i, I think that's well kind of if, the value there if all this conversation had done was get me compared to bach in however oblique a sense i would consider it time well spent hasn't happened before god knows uh yes. the the um um so thanks. The I, I know that you and I both have a quote hard out, as they say in the media business, in three minutes. Um, mine is going to involve another person actually showing up on this very Zoom platform. It's great that Zoom did finally institute this thing where you have the option. You know, you have to actively let people into the conversation. Otherwise, this person would just literally show up. And uh, actually, that would make for an interesting conversation. But anyway, that's not going to happen. The the uh, but so we have to go. Uh, why don't you tell us about your own? Uh, I failed to introduce you at the beginning adequately. Uh, you are among other things uh, a yoga teacher with a podcast and so on. Do you want to just talk a little about where people can find your stuff? I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, I, I'm a yoga teacher of the podcast and I, but more importantly, and I've been trying to think about this on my own, like what, what is my relevance to this conversation? And, um, as I reread or started to reread the moral animal recently, um, it occurred to me that had I read that book at the right time, that could have had a very decisive influence on the direction mm-hmm. my life took because I was, um, in the, in the mid nineties, I was a cultural anthropology student at the university and um, completely awash in 
what I would call the, the infection of postmodern theory on that discipline. And uh, I was drawn to it for re- things that you describe in The Moral Animal, but wasn't really finding um, in, my, in my university degree. And then, and then kind of in a, in a way that where I became a little bit of a drift, I went to Asia for a while and got into yoga more and meditation and then sort of cobbled together a livelihood around that. But intellectually, I've always been quite interested, um, if, if only cursorily uh, aware, but interested in uh, the, the themes that you talk about, like these, these evolutionary themes um, that influence the way we see things and, um, and how to transcend them. And uh, so that's sort of where I just, in, con- in conversing with you, I just, I, I, uh, hope to help your view and your articulation of your, your worldview more relevant and accessible to, to others. Well, that's what I'm grateful for. And, and although I never discourage people from reading my books or never, as a rule, never wish they hadn't. I mean, if, if reading it had taken you on a different path, we, we might, for all we know, have never met. So that would, right. and, and not be having this conversation. So in this case, I'm glad you, uh, but if anyone is new to the to the listenership here, uh, definitely check out this your your books, uh, Moral Animal, Non Zero. They're they're very entertaining and eminently readable, and um, just you know the upgrade of that perceptual lens uh, way. They, they they will change the way people see things for sure. I don't discourage that. And if anyone is interested in yoga, check out your podcast, uh, The Everyday <laughs> Sublime. It, it, that's the title, right? Yep. Yep. Um, and, uh, or just Google you. You're, you're like this, you're like, you know, you're a celebrated yoga figure. <laughs> As well. I'm celebrating so, you. I'm celebrating quietly, you. So, quietly so, I mean, there's, there's yoga people and there's yoga people and I, I, I appreciate yoga and I enjoy sharing it. Um, but it, you know, it's, it's just yoga. I mean, you, you also, I should say, you've done a lot of meditate more than, more than I have, I think. I mean, you've been been. To, I mean, not to get competitive, you've been to more retreats, probably, and so on. We'll, and, we'll, and we'll troll you, out you know a lot about that, and you know uh, part about parts of meditative tradition that I'm less well versed in, and I think uh, sort of future con- conversations will probably benefit from that. So, the person who would be bursting in here if I didn't have this uh, screening mechanism has arrived. So I guess we should go. But um, but thank you. And, and 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 as people can tell, I think there's more for us to say. Um, so we will be we will be doing that. Rest assured. We'll be back. Okay. Yeah. I look forward to it. Thanks so much, Bob. Okay. Thank you, Josh.